DW, World in Progress. Welcome to the show. I'm Kathleen Schuster. Coming up, more and more countries across the globe are facing water shortages and are scrambling to find solutions. We want water. Water is life. If nothing changes, then we need to get away from here. We'll also hear from researcher Simon Levine from the UK-based think tank ODI about a surprising short-term answer to making people more resilient to drought. Any health is helpful. (laughs) That's kind of obvious, isn't it? Quite a bit of research has been done on this, which has shown that payments, no, they don't totally cover the gap which people have, but they go a long way. You're listening to World in Progress. I'm your host, Kathleen Schuster. The topic of this week's show is drought, a rather dry topic, but an important one all the same. We begin in the South American country of Chile, where people are seeing their water sources dry up and the water that remains harder and harder to come by. This prompts the question, should people have a right to water? To which many in Chile say yes. Reporters Ana Herberg and Diego Gonzalez have more. Their report is presented by Charlie Shield. Hugo Queiroz's dream has dried up. This 66-year-old farmer lives in Chincolco, a small community at the foot of the Andes, about 200 kilometres north of Santiago de Chile. There, he grows olive trees. But now, he's faced with withered branches on sandy soil. For three years, we had production. We sold olives and olive oil. But then the drought came. We collected the water from the washing machine and the shower and used it for watering. We were able to save a few trees, but everything else dried up. Chile is suffering from a drought, and the province of Petorca is one of the regions most affected by the water shortage. However, the consequences are mainly borne by smaller farmers like Quiroz, because access to water is extremely unevenly distributed in the South American country. The effects of climate change are undeniable. However, there's actually still enough water here for people. It's just not getting to them. That's geologist Carolina Vilches, who's involved in the movement to defend water. In Chile, the agribusiness industry consumes nearly 80% of the water, she notes. In Petorca, this is clearly visible. The river where farmer Quiroz once learned to swim has now dried up. But avocados, on the other hand, are thriving in the desert-like landscape, lush and green. Experts estimate that between 300 and 500 litres of water are needed to grow one kilo of avocados. And apparently, that amount of water is available there. The agricultural industry, which is geared towards exports, citrus, walnuts or avocados, overuses the soil and water and destroys native vegetation. And what does this mean? That we're upsetting the water cycle. It's not just drought, it's also plunder. Vilches wants to change that. She was one of the 154 members of the Constituent Assembly who drew up a new social contract for Chile last year, which would protect the right to water. It would be tantamount to a revolution. Until now, water in Chile has been a commodity that can be traded and speculated on. 
Chile is the only country in the world where the water supply is almost completely privatized, a legacy still of the military dictatorship of Augusto Pinochet. What we are doing in the new constitution is guaranteeing the right to water, which means that you get an official permit to use water, which is temporary and non-tradable. But hopes of a right to water have been put on hold, for now at least. The referendum on September 4th failed by a landslide, with 62% of Chilean voters voting against the new constitution. The great euphoria, when just two years ago nearly 80% of voters were in favour of drafting a new social contract, has dimmed. President Gabriel Boric has expressed a willingness to repeat the constitutional process, But as talks continue, it's unlikely a new referendum could be held before next spring. The farmaqueros can't understand people's opposition. Chile needs change, he says, pointing to his withered olive trees. That report by Anna Herberg and Diego Gonzalez was presented by Charlie Shield. Well, one area of the world that's also been mulling over its laws when it comes to water is the West Bank. Maintaining the water supply in the West Bank is already a delicate task given its arid climate, which keeps getting hotter. And Palestinians there say water extraction has also become a political issue. Reporter Kilian Neuwert has more. His report is presented by Elliot Douglas. Dogs bark in greeting on the farm of Omar Bisharat in the northern Jordan Valley. The thermometer shows over 30 degrees Celsius or 86 degrees Fahrenheit. There is dust and stones as far as the eye can see. Only a gravel road leads to the farm. Water is a scarce commodity here. I have to bring the water with tanks, and that is very difficult and expensive. I can hardly afford it. And often tanks are confiscated by the Israeli army. It is a hard life here. Omar Bisharat receives visitors in a brick hut, a single room without windows. Outside, a corrugated iron roof covers the enclosure for his sheep and provides some shade. In the distance, the eyes are drawn to a farmland of an Israeli settlement. It is lush and green and stands out from the otherwise barren desert-like landscape. It is an unpleasant sight for Sacher Bisharat, who also lives out here. They have trees there, but none grow here. They are connected to the water network. We are not. They have houses there. We don't have any. Our children have to sit in the heat. Conflicts over water are almost commonplace in the Jordan Valley. The valley is located in the Israeli-occupied West Bank. In the largest part of the Jordan Valley, Israel is responsible for military and civil administration. It is a so-called sea area. All those who live here claim water for themselves. Palestinians as well as Jewish settlers who have built several settlements here and who live off agriculture. International critics have repeatedly pointed out that the settlers have more water at their disposal than the Palestinians. The 
A few kilometers further south, David El Hayani is sitting in his office. Two air conditioners are installed here. There is water in the toilet and in the sink. El Hayani is the head of the Jewish settlements here. He sees things differently than the Palestinian farmers and shows satellite images on the monitor. If you see, this is Marjinaje, this is Bidat, this is Marjinaje. Tell me, it's all green. From where the water? From where? Look, area C, it's all green. From where the water? From God? No. There is a water, but it's not enough. When you say that they don't have water, they have water. The interview underscores that water supply has long become one of the core issues in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Agreements from the 1990s are still being applied today, concluded during a phase of mutual rapprochement. However, the final negotiations, which were originally planned for the year 2000, never took place. And so, among other things, rules on water extraction are still in force, rules that were established almost 30 years ago. Since then, water has become scarcer and the population has grown. Palestinians in the occupied West Bank are not allowed to simply drill wells. They must obtain their water primarily from Israel. To bring from Bet-She'an to the Jordan Valley more than 40 million cubic meters of water per year that will, be, will solve the problem of the Israeli communities, the agriculture and the Palestinians. What David El Hayani is proposing here is a mammoth project and does not seem feasible at present. So the water supply in the Jordan Valley is likely to remain a problem and a point of contention. Elliot Douglas with that report from Kilian Neuvert. You're listening to World in Progress with me, Kathleen Schuster. Coming up, we'll hear about a surprising solution researchers say just might be key to coping with natural disasters. But first, some music. Stay tuned. You're listening to World in Progress with me, Kathleen Schuster. When it comes to drought and water scarcity, there's a lot of talk about how to protect water sources and land from the effects of climate change. But what about helping people cope with drought? Some researchers are saying governments and NGOs can, in fact, help people become more resilient to natural disasters. A group of researchers from the UK-based think tank ODI, for example, found in a case study of the Horn of Africa that social protection programs were particularly effective. To find out more, I called up Simon Levine, an expert on the Horn of Africa and a senior research fellow at ODI. This is how he explained the types of social protection programs researchers are talking about. So the idea is that you identify in advance the families, the households which are going to struggle to cope. Usually the households which are poor, and they will struggle to cope even in a year when the rains are normal. And then this kind of money, when they're faced with particular difficulties because of drought and their crops have failed or their animals are dying and they don't have any other sources or they don't have adequate sources of food or income, this can help tide them over these kinds of payments, which tend to be quite small. And increasingly, the schemes are trying to go one step further, which is to say, well, it won't just be a normal safety net, which is there and will give out a standard payout to poor people to help them through. But they will scale up, they will increase when the country is facing difficulties, for example, because of drought. 
And increasing could mean that it gives money to more people. So that people who would normally be able to cope on their own, but who can't in a drought, will get some money. And increasing can also mean that the payments will become rather larger because in a drought, food prices go up, people have even greater needs, so it will try and help cover an even bigger gap. He says these programs go back roughly 15 years and are basically payouts in the form of food and money transfers. There are also some that are conditional, that is to say, cash in hand in exchange for work, like repairing roads. So if a social safety net is the answer, how feasible is that in countries that are unstable? It's not easy. It's a simple answer. And in some cases, it's impossible. Levine says Somalia, for example, is the country hardest hit by drought and is gripped by conflict, which means the state can't reach everyone. Um, That also means that aid agencies can't access uh, some of those places. And it basically means that it's impossible to make payments to people in those areas. So any form of safety net which there is in the country is only going to be partial. And in the case of Somalia, isn't going to reach the people who are most likely to need it the most um, in the current drought. If you look at Ethiopia again, you have a sort of low, more low-lying conflict which flares up periodically, particularly in the south. That hasn't been a complete barrier to setting up the social safety net. But the conflict in the north, in Tigray, for example, there you have a government policy of not allowing aid into the area. So the, the safety net isn't really working there. And that is a terrible problem. This is why he cautions against seeing social safety nets as the solution to everyone's problems. Because, of course, yeah, in theory, you can end poverty if you are able to give people enough money, but the costs of that are way beyond what anyone is prepared to give. I mean, you get safety nets which are giving, you know, sort of 20, 25 euro for a family a month, for example. Now, it's true that the cost of living is an awful lot lower in Ethiopia and Somalia than it is in Europe. But if you're thinking about countries which are importing food, as they have to do in droughts, so you know they're buying rice on the international market, they're paying pretty much the same prices as we are, you'll see that sort of 25 euro doesn't go a very long way. Especially for people who depend on livestock. Basically, all they've got very often is their, their animals. When they die, yeah, that's thousands of euro, thousands of dollars of assets. You know, you can't rebuild up a herd with, you know, with a payment of $25 or $50 even. So the extent to which... The social safety nets are immediately going to help people get, you know, pick themselves up after a drought of this severity. No, let's not kid ourselves. But that doesn't mean that they don't play a role and that they aren't of some help. Another important factor is displacement caused by drought. The UN projects that drought could force up to 216 million people worldwide from their homes over the next 25 years or so. Levine says social protections become even trickier in these situations. When people arrive in a new place, they've got no land, they've got no assets, they've got no animals, they've got no work, they've got no jobs, nothing. How are they supposed to survive? There is only one way in which they can survive initially, very often, and that is through assistance. The social safety nets that we began talking about very often aren't that useful there. That's just because of how they're set up. They're very often not capable of giving assistance to the people who come in as IDPs. And that's for different reasons. Partly it's bureaucratic because you were registered in one place and now you're in another place and there's just no way of giving you the money in the new place because, you know, you're not registered there. It kind of sounds silly, but yeah, those are the limitations of systems that we have. Still, it's an important step in the right direction, he says. Yes, any help is helpful. (laughs) That's kind of obvious, isn't it? So, yes, I mean, quite a bit of research has been done on this, which has shown that... Payments, no, they don't totally cover the gap which people have, but they go a long way to helping people being able to 
cope. You know, they tighten their belts and they get through. And research has shown that it does help farmers to get back on their feet more quickly than they would otherwise. But I think we need to be careful again. And, you know, drought is just a term for when it doesn't rain, for example, when people are hit by that. But no two droughts are the same. And what we're facing at the moment, I mean, it is, yeah, it's the mother of all droughts for the Horn of Africa. They have had four rains in a row which have failed. The predictions are that the coming rains, the fifth, will also fail. Failing rains are something that are also slowly being felt in Europe where he and I are sitting. So I asked him whether he thought there were lessons to be drawn from the Horn of Africa and its experience with social protection programs as we prepare for a future with less water. I don't know whether the rest of the world is yet willing to learn lessons from places like East Africa, the Horn of Africa. I think that we still don't see those places as being places just like ours, only having more difficulties. I think we still see them as very other. If you look at, you know, the European countries who are acting as donors very often, yeah, are not really biting the bullet and, and, and able to copy the kind of messages which they're preaching abroad back home. So, yeah, I would like to think that we'd be able to look and see, yeah, this is what happens when water is scarce. And, yeah, here in Europe, we ought to be thinking ahead five, ten years, and we ought to be thinking and learning some lessons from places which are facing more critical problems more rarely than we are. Simon Levine is a senior research fellow at the think tank ODI. He was speaking to World in Progress from London. Africa, more than any other continent, has been the hardest hit by drought. It accounts for nearly 45% of the world's most severe droughts. That's according to a recent report by the UN Convention to Combat Desertification. In the West African country of Burkina Faso, this problem is being weaponized. Over 30 water systems have been destroyed in deliberate attacks this year, and aid organizations warn that hundreds of thousands of lives are at risk. Reporter Dunya Sadaki has this report. It's presented by Connor Dillon. In Jibo, a town in the north of Burkina Faso, water pumps and boreholes appear to have been deliberately destroyed. Jibo is home to hundreds of thousands who have already fled terrorism and violence. Aminata is from the city, but fled from terrorist groups to the capital Ouagadougou, as she explained on the French news channel France 24. They came to our neighborhood to tell us we have 24 hours to leave. At the moment, I don't even know exactly where my family is. All I know is that they are gone and still alive. I cannot stay here in Wagadougou. My whole family is in Jibo. My husband, my children, my mother. The situation in Jibo is highly alarming, says Marina Olivesi. She's a spokeswoman for the Norwegian Refugee Council in Burkina Faso and is observing the developments with concern. 
Donc, par exemple, dans la ville de Djibo, uh, avant le début des attaques en février... In the city of Djibo, before the attacks began in February, the population had about three to six liters of water per day per person. That was already a worrying figure, since, according to the World Health Organization, seven liters of water is the minimum limit for a person to survive. Since these attacks, people have consumed half of the available water. But the problem is now spreading beyond the city of Djibo. Almost 300,000 people are directly affected by these water attacks, according to Marina Olivesi. In many places, there was already a shortage of medicine and food, and water was scarce even before the attacks. Since February, 32 incidents have been documented. The destruction of water points, tanker trucks, deliberate contamination of water points by animal carcasses that we found in wells, sabotage with electrical generators. All of these attacks have contributed to exacerbating already existing water shortages. The inhabitants of Jibo will be supplied with water via convoys. But despite the efforts, Michael Malika of Doctors Without Borders in Burkina Faso describes the situation as a catastrophic humanitarian crisis. Even aid organizations have reached their limits. The population in Jibo needs more than 500 cubic meters of water per day. Unfortunately, Doctors Without Borders can only supply around 100 cubic meters. There is a risk that we face here, a lack of clean water for the population, that is, water for cooking, for cleaning, for drinking, and also for doctors without borders. Water is important for our work, for the structures that we support, for the medical stations and hospitals. Terrorist groups and armed gangs are using water as a weapon. Their alleged goal is to further worsen the already difficult security situation in the country. Since 2015, there have been repeated extremist attacks there. These are acts of terrorism in the name of radical Islam, but they're also about controlling drug trafficking. NGOs are now describing this as a targeted water war against the population. Connor Dillon with that report by Dunya Sadaki. Within the next 25 years or so, a lack of water could force well over 200 million people to migrate, according to UN climate experts. One country that's already experiencing this trend is Mexico. The lack of water is pitting average citizens against big business and sometimes against criminal gangs, too. Critics say it's not as simple as blaming the climate crisis either. Jenny Baca has this report. It's presented by Inaka Mules. The residents of Constituyentes del 57 can finally breathe a sigh of relief. It's the first time in three days this poorer neighbourhood north of Monterrey has received a visit from a so-called PIPA, a water tank filled with 10,000 litres of clean, fresh drinking water. Lara has been standing in line for two hours beneath the sweltering sun, equipped with over 30 10-litre buckets. She'll have to carry the field buckets home later in the 37-degree heat. The situation is very difficult. There's no timetable for the water trucks, so no one knows when exactly they'll come. I often have to choose between going to work or getting water. If I go to work, I might miss the water truck. (laughs) 
For the past six months, not a single drop of water has come out of the taps in this community. But this isn't an isolated case. The worst drought in 30 years has left hundreds of thousands of people without water. Monterrey is Mexico's second largest city. The country's most important industrial metropolis is growing rapidly. But the water supply can't keep up. Two of the three surrounding reservoirs, which serve the population of approximately 5.3 million, have already completely dried up. In the countryside, the situation is even worse. Three hundred kilometres away, in the rural region near Torreon in the state of Coahuila, residents here haven't witnessed water running from the tap in years. But the much-anticipated pipa deliveries are even less frequent here. In some places, the precious commodity is even intercepted by criminal gangs. The water that does manage to reach the municipality is getting more and more expensive. 10 litres currently costs 10 pesos, or around 50 euro cents. For many residents, like Alberto Silva, the price is simply too steep. I earn 80 pesos a day. I would have to spend all of it to buy as much water as I need on a daily basis. How am I supposed to pay for this? Then I won't be able to eat. But we really do need water. The World Health Organization recommends a minimum daily requirement of 100 litres of water. That adds up to just under 5 euros a day. For Silvia and other residents, this is unaffordable. On top of this, there's no end in sight to the ongoing drought. Of the little water the community has, dilapidated pipes in households means it can't even get to where it's supposed to go. Lawyer and water activist Miguel Angel Hernandez believes corrupt politics is to blame for the deteriorating situation here, which has been ignored for years. Half of the tap water gets lost along the way. It just seeps into the earth. We have serious legal, regulatory and technical problems. What do the authorities need to do? They should install a functional system, which means investments need to be made in treatment areas and water pipes. In Monterrey, too, residents are angry. They're accusing politicians of favouring large corporations who were granted generous water concessions by Mexico's neoliberal former presidents. Loud protests outside the corporation's headquarters are now commonplace. Water management researcher Edgar Gutierrez believes these concessions are no longer up to date and is calling on politicians to introduce stricter regulations. Our constitution must guarantee access to water for everyone. But at the moment, politicians are definitely prioritizing corporations and all types of industry. According to research from Mexican media platform PopLab, the country's major industries have access to twice as much water as private households. The current water shortage is by no means simply a climate crisis. It's a political crisis. Because water is flowing for the agriculture industry, 
as well as big beverage manufacturers like Coca-Cola and Heineken. But even if climate change isn't the only cause of the water scarcity in the already dry region, climate extremes are still expected to increase in northern Mexico, warns hydrologist Jürgen Malknecht from the Monterrey Institute of Technology. This means plans need to be put in place now to ensure the region can properly store its water supplies in the future. When a city is constantly growing, the authorities are always thinking about where they can get more water, from rivers, reservoirs or underground sources. But I think we urgently need to rethink this approach in the future. How can we recycle the water and use it again? According to research from PopLab, many industries in Mexico discharge their contaminated and unfiltered water back into the environment. It's the paradox of Mexico's water crisis. Some have so much they take it for granted, while others struggle to afford enough to quench their thirst. Right now, about 80% of Mexico is gripped by drought. We want water. Water is life. If nothing changes, then we need to get away from here, says Ofelio Iveros Infante, a resident of a small village in the Sierra near Torreon. And he is just one of many who are considering leaving their homeland if the situation doesn't change. Ina Camille's with that report from Jenny Baca. And that's all we have for you on this week's show. To listen back to this and other reports from World in Progress, check out the Media Center at DW.com or download the show from Spotify or Apple Podcasts. In the meantime, if you have any feedback or questions for us, just drop us a line at worldinprogress at DW.com. This week's show was produced by Vipka Tektmaya and me, Kathleen Schuster. Our sound engineer was Thomas Schmidt. Be sure to tune in again next week. World in Progress is produced by DW in Bonn, Germany. Thank you.